0: section four of twain and howells on each other this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. my mark twain literary friends and acquaintances by william dean howells chapter three the visits to hartford which had begun with this affluence continued without actual increase of riches for me but now i went alone and in warner's european and egyptian absences i formed the habit of going to clemens by this time he was in his new house where he used to give me a royal chamber on the ground floor and come in at night after i had gone to bed to take off the burglar alarm so that the family should not be roused if anybody tried to get in at my window this would be after we had sat up late he smoking the last of his innumerable cigars and soothing his tense nerves with a mild hot scotch, while we both talked and talked and talked of everything in the heavens and on the earth and the waters under the earth. After two days of this talk I would come away hollow, realizing myself best in the image of one of those locust shells which you find sticking to the bark of trees at the end of summer. Once, after some such bout of brains, we went down to New York together, and sat facing each other in the Pullman smoker, without passing a syllable, till we had occasion to say, Well, we're there. Then with our installation in a now-vanished hotel, the old Brunswick, to be specific, the talk began again with the inspiration of the novel environment, and went on and on, We wished to be asleep, but we could not stop, and he lounged through the rooms in the long nightgown which he always wore in preference to the pajamas which he despised, and told the story of his life, the inexhaustible, the fairy, the Arabian night story, which I could never tire of, even when it began to be told over again, or at times he would reason high, of Providence foreknowledge will and fate fixed fate free will foreknowledge absolute walking up and down and halting now and then with a fine toss and slant of his shaggy head as some bold thought or splendid joke struck him he was in those days a constant attendant at the church of his great friend the reverend joseph h twitchell and at least tacitly far from the entire negation he came to at last. I should say he had hardly yet examined the grounds of his passive acceptance of his wife's belief, for it was hers and not his, and he held it unscanned in the beautiful and tender loyalty to her which was the most moving quality of his most faithful soul. I make bold to speak of the love between them, because without it, I could not make him known to others as he was known to me. It was a greater part of him than the love of most men for their wives, and she merited all the worship he could give her, all the devotion, all the implicit obedience, by her surpassing force and beauty of character. She was in a way the loveliest person I have ever seen, the gentlest, the kindest, without a touch of weakness. She united wonderful tact with wonderful truth, and Clemens not only accepted her rule implicitly, but he rejoiced, he gloried in it. I am not sure that he noticed all her goodness in the actions that made it a heavenly vision to others. He so had the habit of her goodness. But if there was any forlorn and helpless creature in the room, Mrs. Clemens was somehow promptly at his side or hers. She was always seeking occasion of kindness to those in her household or out of it. She loved to let her heart go beyond the reach of her hand, and imagined the whole hard and suffering world with compassion for its structural as well as incidental wrongs. I suppose she had her ladyhood limitations, her female fears of etiquette and convention, but she did not let them hamper the wild and splendid generosity with which clemens rebelled against the social stupidities and cruelties she had been a lifelong invalid when he met her and he liked to tell the beautiful story of their courtship to each new friend whom he found capable of feeling its beauty or worthy of hearing it naturally her father had hesitated to give her into the keeping of the young strange westerner who had risen up out of the unknown with his giant reputation of burlesque humorist and demanded guarantees demanded proofs he asked me clemens would say if i couldn't give him the names of people who knew me in california and when it was time to hear from them I heard from him. Well, Mr. Clemens, he said, nobody seems to have a very good word for you. I hadn't referred him to people that I thought were going to whitewash me. I thought it was all up with me, but I was disappointed. So I guess I shall have to back you myself whether this made him faithfuler to the trust put in him i cannot say but probably not it was always in him to be faithful to any trust and in proportion as a trust of his own was betrayed he was ruthlessly and implacably resentful but i wish now to speak of the happiness of that household in hartford which responded so perfectly to the ideals of the mother when the three daughters so lovely and so gifted, were yet little children. There had been a boy, and, yes, I killed him, Clemens once said, with the unsparing self-blame in which he would wreak an unavailing regret. He meant that he had taken the child out imprudently, and the child had taken the cold which he died of, but it was by no means certain this was through its father's imprudence. I never heard him speak of his son except that once, but no doubt in his deep heart his loss was irreparably present. He was a very tender father and delighted in the minds of his children, but he was wise enough to leave their training altogether to the wisdom of their mother. He left them to that in everything, keeping for himself the pleasure of teaching them little scenes of drama, learning languages with them, and leading them in singing. They came to the table with their parents and could have set him an example in behavior when, in moments of intense excitement, he used to leave his place and walk up and down the room, flying his napkin and talking and talking. It was after his first English sojourn that I used to visit him, and he was then full of praise of everything English, the English personal independence and public spirit and hospitality and truth. He liked to tell stories in proof of their virtues, but he was not blind to the defects of their virtues, their submissive acceptance of caste, their callousness with strangers, their bluntness with one another. Mrs. Clemens had been in a way to suffer socially more than he, and she praised the English less. She had sat after dinner with ladies who snubbed and ignored one another and left her to find her own amusement in the absence of the attention with which Americans perhaps cloy their guests, but which she could not help preferring. In their successive sojourns among them I believe he came to like the English less and she more. The fine delight of his first acceptance among them did not renew itself till his Oxford degree was given him. Then it made his cup run over and he was glad the whole world should see it. His wife would not chill the ardor of his early anglomania, and in this, as in everything, she wished to humor him to the utmost. No one could have realized more than she his essential fineness, his innate nobleness. Marriages are what the parties to them alone really know them to be, but from the outside I should say that this marriage was one of the most perfect. It lasted in his absolute devotion to the day of her death, that delayed long in cruel suffering, and that left one side of him in lasting night. From Florence there came to me heart-breaking letters from him about the torture she was undergoing, and at last a letter saying she was dead, with a simple-hearted cry, I wish I was with Livy. I do not know why I have left saying till now that she was a very beautiful woman, classically regular in features, with black hair smooth over her forehead, and with tenderly peering, myopia eyes, always behind glasses, and a smile of angelic kindness. But this kindness went with a sense of humor which qualified her to appreciate the self-lawed genius of a man who will be remembered with the great humorists of all time with Cervantes, with Swift, or with any others worthy his company. None of them was equal in humanity. End of chapter 3 of My Mark Twain